the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from CU at the Game. Well, that was close. How good was CU's defense in the 10-7 loss to number 5 Texas A&M? The last two times CU held a top 5 team to 10 points or less are both in the top 5 of my all-time list of CU favorite games. The 2010 victory over number 3 Nebraska in 1986 and the 10-9 win over number 5 Notre Dame in the 1991 Orange Bowl. Yes, this game was that close to being one of the all-time biggest wins in CU history. Brad, Neil, and I will discuss the good, bad, and the what might have been of CU's first loss of the season before we turn our attention to the Buffs' last non-conference game against the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Our tips, and again, that stands for our review of the opposing team's talent, intangibles, preparation, and stats, will get you ready for Game 3 of the 2021 season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your podcasts. That way, you will always be alerted as soon as the podcast is posted. The goal is to get them out on Tuesdays, with my written tips for each game posted on the See You at the Game website each Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. If the Buffs proved anything in their battle with the Texas A&M Aggies, is that they should be a factor in every game they play this season. Will the Buffs take out their frustrations against Minnesota? Or will there be a hangover which haunts the Buffs and brings about another tough loss? Let's find out. Okay, we are back for our review preview, and we're saying hello to one Brad Geiger. Brad, how you doing? Doing great. It was an interesting weekend of football. And rejoining us is Neil Langland looking down upon the little people in downtown Denver. How's Neil doing? I'm doing fine. I'm looking down on the 16th Street Mall. So having a good night. Well, very good. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And normally we're just going to do a review of CU's previous game and then a preview of the upcoming game, but we can't ignore the Story of the day, former CU athletic director, Mike Bone, now the athletic director at USC by way of Cincinnati, let go the USC head coach, Clay Helton, two games into the season. Neil, we'll start with you. What was your immediate reaction when you heard the news that Clay Helton was not going to be coming to Boulder to play the Buffs? 
um, this is my immediate reaction. I've been busy all day. I had not heard that. I think Bone didn't have a lot of choice. Judging from the fan dissatisfaction, he couldn't let that go too far uh, without damaging the program. I think he had to move, and Bone is a decisive guy. Okay. Well, he hired three, count them, three head coaches at the University of Colorado. I uh, hired Dan Hawkins in 2006, John Embry in 2011, and December of 2012, right before he went out the door himself, Mike Bone hired Mike McIntyre. Now, to his credit, he also hired Luke Fickle at Cincinnati when he was the athletic director there. So, Brad, thoughts on Clay Helton era, thoughts on Clay Helton replacement? Well, I mean, Clay Helton was, of course, a victim of expectations and high ones, and he didn't meet them. I mean, that was a dreadful Stanford team that they got dominated by, and the Wolves were truly baying. I'm a little surprised. Bone usually is a little bit uh, more thoughtful from that, but then again, Helton was not his guy, and it was probably the easiest thing to throw this season to the Wolves and announce it you're going to overpay whatever coach you can get and we're going to try again. Wow. Well, the speculation is already running rampant, but that was always going to be the case. So why would you have that speculation? Cause you're not going to get, if you're going to get a Luke fickle, because obviously he knows him, he hired him in Cincinnati, or if you're going to get fill in the blank, uh, saw Mario Cristobal at Oregon, Kyle Whittingham at Utah, two Pac-12 coaches being mentioned as possible replacements. You're not going to get them until January. Why pull the trigger in September? What's the upside? Well, the upside for Bone is he looks decisive. Um, the upside for hiring a new coach is, I guess, if you think you know your guy, you give that guy six months to figure out how to get out of his next out of his current contract. <laughs> um, my favorite Twitter speculation was that Urban Meyer will have yet another health issue and require the sunny climes of Southern California. But putting that aside, no, I suspect that the idea is to become the first top program to be hiring and therefore expect that everybody's going to spend the next six months preparing for that job. Wow. So Neil, you disappointed that uh, as I was, my first reaction was that I was just hoping he'd last three more weeks and that he would have his first loss and USC's first ever loss to Colorado be the final nail in the coffin and former CU AD Mike Bone decides, well, if you can't beat CU, you can't be the head coach at the University of Southern California. Disappointed that uh, we won't get to see anything besides an assistant coach patrolling the sidelines in Boulder in October? As I was digesting Saturday night the results, I thought, well, finally, based upon CU's performance and USC's drift, that this is the year we were going to get them and do it to them on their own field. And I had assumed that well, that Helton would have a little more rope, a little time to recover, but I'm really disappointed because I think what's going to happen now 
is because Helton had lost the team. They weren't playing for him. A new assistant is probably going to come in and be able to motivate those guys to play up to their ability. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. That uh, the intangibles for our tips for the USC game just went from a positive for the Buffs to a positive for the Trojans that uh, they're going to be playing, you know, for themselves. They're going to be playing for their potential new head coach, you know, to show their their value, their worth. But we will have plenty of time. Unfortunately, this is one of those things where you'd like to have uh, several hours in December and January to discuss all the minutia of a hiring head coach for what could arguably be called, or at least they believe, would be the flagship program of the Pac-12. But we have Colorado football to talk about. So last Saturday, we had at Mile High Stadium, Empower Field, a 10-7 loss to number five, Texas A&M. You a glass half full guy that we were 17-point underdogs and were within three minutes of an upset, or is this a devastating loss because they came so close? Well, first of all, of course, those loyal listeners knew that neither Stuart and I last week had any hope for this kind of result. Yeah, I understand the idea there are no moral victories, but everything about that game led you to believe that this is a better team than we feared. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be glass half full guy. We faced a team that was, as we said, undoubtedly more talented than CU, um, with a greater history of success recently than CU, with the longest winning streak in the country, and we're every bit as good as they were for every minute of that game and not playing at home in addition. So yeah, I would have, would I have liked to have won that game? Would I've liked to scored in the second quarter and made it farther? Would I like to have held a little better? Perhaps. Yeah. But nobody can look at that effort and in any way be disappointed. And that kind of effort has to pay off against teams not quite as good as Texas A&M. Yeah. Well, Neil, before I let you talk, I'd say, first of all, Brad, just say, what's the second longest winning streak in the country behind Alabama? Alabama was at 15 and A&M was at nine. But before I get any emails, it was the second longest winning streak. Neil, are you one of those that have the tar and feathers ready to go to find Darren Cheverini's house and condemn the two sneaks at the five-yard line in the second quarter, that uh, one downfield pass in each of the first two games. What's wrong with the Colorado offense? Why can't CU score more than seven points? Well, I was going to say that I wanted to think about the psychology of the team and where their heads are right now, because I think they had been building for this game for several months. And that was a maximum effort that they gave. And there are many positives to come from it. Um, One thing we must do, though, is temper our expectations because we were facing a backup quarterback who missed many, many open receivers. And had he been able to complete those passes ordinarily done by a starter, I think the score would have been much different. That said, I was very pleased with the way the D-line matched up with the offensive line. They gave 
A&M's O-line all they could handle and more. The only uh, thing we fell short on, I think, was pass rush. The offense, to your question about the sneaks, I was fine with a sneak on third down, but I prefer the the old Stanford put three tackles in the backfield sort of sneak and then just let them bulldoze their way over uh, the stick. Uh, on the fourth down, my reaction initially was get the points, get the points. Don't let A&M have any kind of moral victory because at that time they were back on their heels. They'd been dominated the entire half and CU's confidence in their offense after that failed fourth down just seemed to slip away and they were completely ineffective after that. Not sure if it was all psychological. A lot of it has to be attributed to A&M, their talent and their adjustments. But I think when an offense is going well and then they have a failure, I put that on the coach. I think it was a bad strategic decision to go for uh, a sneak on fourth and not take points. Yeah. Um, I think my biggest gripe would have been the, the one on third down. I think that they didn't know how far away we were. It was more like a yard and a half on third down, but it seemed like the coaches were treating it like, oh, it's just a half yard. We'll get the first down, get our first and goal at the four and, and go from there. The quarterback sneak on third down actually worked. It gained a yard, but it was a full yard and a half on third down. And yeah, how that ended up being another quarterback sneak and you don't have the quarterback. Of course, that's coaching, you know, stand up and look for a hole on a quarterback sneak on fourth and half a yard. You just tell them to push forward. And yeah, you have your fullback, you have Jaleel stacks in there pushing him because that's, you know, the Bush push is now legal. So it was unfortunate, but, you know, I don't, uh, Carl Durrell was very adamant that that was not the deciding factor in the game, in his opinion. And there was plenty of opportunities for the Buffs to still pull out that victory. One thing that stood out to me, Brad, that if you're playing against the backup quarterback, and that would have been the narrative of Seawood C- one, that it's like, oh, the quarterback went out. What are you going to do? You know, they weren't prepared for that. Well, if you have a backup quarterback and you're not confident in his passing, what do you do? You run the ball. Okay. And what does AM have in the backfield? Well, they have a first team, all SEC which we talked about last week is not a small feat running back in Isaiah Spiller and had another back Devon Kane, who also ran for hundred yards. They both ran for hundred yards in the opener. Well, just run the ball, run the ball, run the ball because you're an sec team and you've got an all first team, all sec running back. At the end of the day, Isaiah Spiller had eight carries for 20 yards and Devon Arcane had nine carries for 50 yards. So if they were worried about their backup quarterback not being able to pass the ball, then they should have run the ball, and they weren't able to run the ball. So does that give you some optimism going forward that uh, they were not confident enough to just play smash mouth for three quarters with a backup quarterback? They got outplayed in the running game. There's absolutely no doubt Texas A&M didn't run more because they couldn't. The defensive line did everything we expected them to do and more. Backups that we didn't know about played better. And then Nate Landman had a 
Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year quality game again, because that's just what he does. And the bottom line is, in the end, the touchdown pass was because they couldn't run. They could, however, their speedy running back was better in the flat than our not quite as speedy linebacker. Again, that's a talent issue. And that's going to happen to dang near every linebacker with that running back. But Texas A&M didn't stop running the ball because they wanted to. They stopped running the ball because it couldn't. Optimism going forward. So, Neil, CU has thrown exactly two passes downfield in two games. One was an overthrown Paul to Daniel Arias in the Northern Colorado game, and one was a fairly catchable ball. The safety made a good play. Same receiver, Daniel Arias, jarred the ball loose. wasn't really a bad effort on Arias' part. It was just a good play by the, the safety to come up and get the ball out. So would you attribute CU's inability to throw the ball downfield to, A, Darren Cheverini not calling the plays, B, our quarterback, Brandon Lewis, not being able to throw a deep ball, or C, that we're still dealing with a freshman quarterback and they are spoon-feeding the playbook to him, and that as he grows into the role, there will be more downfield passing. What would be your choice? Um, I would have to go with C, but I'd like to invoke the, the privilege, non-existent to this point, of making up my own answer, which would be, <laughs> we, we don't know who is controlling that play calling. We don't know whether it's um, K, if, if it's Durrell or if it's strictly Cheverini. Whatever it is or whoever it is, they don't seem to be confident in their wide receivers. Something I don't understand because that is supposedly one of our more talented groups. There haven't been many targets at all of the wide receivers in either game. That's puzzling to me. That leads me to believe that they think that the quarterback does not have the skill to find them uh, visually and then to find them with the ball. Brad, is that our concern going forward? And of course, the other news of the day, which would have been big news had it not been for the Clay Helton news, is Levante Chenault being suspended. Uh, he didn't play in the A&M game and will not be on the sideline for the foreseeable future. So the wide receiver core, which has not been productive in the first two games, took a hit today. I find it difficult to believe that Chevrolet is deciding on his own not to throw the ball. Last year, we had concerns because, as we've seen at Oregon State, Neuer doesn't have the arm to do that. We hoped this year that would change. I do think this reflects a team philosophy of conserve, being conservative on offense. You know, Chenault is unfortunate, but not unexpected. He does not appear to have substantial off-field discipline, shall we say. I would choose, hopefully, see that this is going to get better. Durrell may pretend not to hear criticism, but he hears criticism. Chevrini may pretend Chevrini can't be on Twitter as much as he is posting and not be reading some of the criticisms. They're hearing this. They know it hurts the team. So I would hope that against Minnesota, 
and other teams, we will throw somewhat deeper. Um, I don't understand it. It's frustrating. And I think it's got to be frustrating to that receiving core. Yeah. Well, a good segue. We're going to, as the coaches want us to, as the players said they have, turn the page, can change history, move forward. So let's talk a little bit about Colorado versus Minnesota, 11 a.m. Mountain Time kickoff in Boulder at Folsom Field, Pac-12 Networks. Forecast high is about 90 degrees, so wear plenty of sunscreen. It is going to be a warm one in uh, Folsom Field. So we're going to talk a little bit about our tips. And for those that are new to the podcast, uh, again, T is for talent, I intangibles, P for preparation, S for stats. So we're going to talk a little bit about the talent of the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Uh, this game was billed as being or was thought of all summer as being a battle of running backs. Last season, Muhammad Ibrahim was second in the nation in rushing yards per game, 153.7 yards per game. Third in the nation was CU's Jarek Broussard at 149.2. Ibrahim was named the freshman running back of the year in the Big Ten. Of course, Jarek Broussard was the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year. So it looked like it was going to be the battle of two running backs, which one was going to be more successful. Ibrahim was having a good game in the opener against Ohio State. He had 163 yards on 30 carries with two touchdowns before he went down with a season ending. What they're describing is a lower leg injury that seems a lot like the Achilles heel injury that Nate Landman suffered, but that's not been officially admitted to or disclosed. Uh, HIPAA kicks in there. So against Miami of Ohio, out trots the backup, Trayson Potts, who went 34 carries, 178 yards, and two touchdowns. Fairly similar numbers to what Ibrahim put out against Ohio State. So battle of the running backs. Neil, I'll let you go first. First impressions of the offensive talent of the Minnesota Golden Gophers coming to Boulder as a, a one-in-one team that's about a two-point underdog to our buffs. I think this is going to be a great test of our front seven and the schemes that our DC has put in. Uh, we did very well against AM that has a big and talented O-line and two very good backs. I think Ibrahim would have been a handful, would have gotten his 100 yards probably with 25 or more carries. It seems like this new guy is much the same. So I'm expecting this to be sort of an old-style Big Ten physical defensive battle. Okay. Brad, I, I see you nodding, which is hard to pick up on the tape. So <laughs> – Tanner Morgan, the Minnesota quarterback, has thrown all of 22 passes in two games. So are we seeing a carbon copy of the Colorado offense, uh, all run, no pass? Less so. Um, I, you know, I got a chance to watch some of that Ohio State game. And, I mean, Morgan is passable. He is big. He is strong. He is not particularly mobile. And he is not accurate. I mean, he went 8 of 17 against... Miami, 
did not complete a pass in the second half, went 0 for 6. He is not, he is in there not to lose the game. Right. And we are hopeful that Brendan Lewis is something more than that. You know, Trayson, what little I saw the highlights of that game, he doesn't have the burst that Ibrahim had, but he is a grinder. He's 5'11, he's 200. Um, he likes to fall forward. Uh, I would be shocked if this is not another double digit tackle game for Landman. There, you know, this is going to be, I agree, this is going to be some old style pounded up and who can stop the run better. I think it's us, but there's going to have to be some passing to mix that up. Miami of Ohio moved the ball repeatedly, all of it in the air. Yeah. So Neil, is that the answer? Is this going to be a coming out party? The defense for Minnesota was the problem last year as they had a losing record after winning 11 games in 2019 so the rowing the boat didn't work as well for P.J. Fleck last year, but it was really not the offenses undoing. The offense with Ibrahim was very effective, but the defense was substandard. And like everybody else, they bring most of their talent back. But if you look at the numbers, and again, it's only through two games, but does not appear to be a, a defense that is as dominant as the ones or at least one that Colorado faced in AM last week. So are you looking for more production from the Colorado offense and certainly more than seven points? Well, seven points will not get the job done for sure. I think CU has to be able to throw the ball a little bit in order to set up their running game. And the formula for CU to win is, like Air Force, is to control the clock, um, long drives and limit Minnesota's possessions. And if the defense can get a couple of stops and three and outs or a couple of punts, CU should have no trouble winning that game. Cause I think we have probably a little bit better in our tight end and wide receiver core. If our play calling and, um, pass protection is up to snuff, um, I would think we should win and probably win by seven to nine points. Okay. Well, you guys are getting to the prediction part pretty early here. I'm glad Sorry. you're pretty optimistic. No, that's fine. Um, I would note that uh, talk about keeping the ball away from Minnesota. They are sixth in the nation in time of possession. So on the intangibles part, Brad, I'm going to turn to you because you and I were in Athens, Georgia in 2006 we went to see an, a winless CU team take on an undefeated Georgia team and come within 46 seconds of defeating Georgia. We lost it 14-13, fumble at midfield in the last couple of minutes, drove down, scored a touchdown, 46 seconds to go, lost 14-13. But we came away from that game thinking, okay, they're struggling in the first year in Dan Hawkins, in the Dan Hawkins era. But if we can stand toe-to-toe, uh, George was ranked ninth in the country at the time. If we can stand toe-to-toe in Athens against Georgia and almost beat them, come within a minute of winning that game, lead, it was pretty much the same as the AM game, led throughout, never trailed until the last minute of the game. And yet the 2006 team, went on to a 2-10 record. 
So all of that goodwill, all of that optimism that we had walking out between the hedges that CU could play with anybody in the country and certainly anybody in the Big 12 at that time did not come to fruition. Did CU's emotions, we put all of our eggs in one emotional basket. Is there a chance that we come out flat against Minnesota and struggle to another loss? Carl Dorello is not Dan Hawkins. <laughs> I mean, that's the short. Well, that was a 45 second lead into a four second answer. So come on. Give me... <laughs> no, Dan Hawkins, for some of his skills, was not the guy who was going to steady a program. He was the guy who, you know, got where he was by rah-rah enthusiasm. Um, Carl Dorello's a lot of things, but I haven't heard the raw words raw or raw come out of his mouth yet. I think that the intangibles are that this is a team that is coming back to Boulder, playing at altitude, a team that, especially a defense that is playing with a great deal of confidence and flat out mean streak. Um, I don't think those go away. Is it possible that the offense struggles? I fear so, but I don't see Nate Landman and Carson Wells and Terrence Lang coming out and going, ah, we can just give up the running game. So the thing that keeps you from falling flat is a defense that won't let you. And that's what I think I see in this team right now. So, Neil, let me ask you. Well, first I'll give you a quote. We did not come here just to show up. We came here to play. We came to win. Of course, that was Dan Hawkins after the Georgia game. Sounds a lot like what Carl Durrell said after the Texas A&M game. Is there any chance in your mind of if the offense for CU comes out and goes three and out, three and out, three and out in the first quarter, that the defense will either figure they have to make plays and take chances or will be disheartened by the fact that the Colorado offense hasn't scored since the first quarter of the AM game and has not been productive for two games. Well, since we're going back in time to that Georgia game, I remember that very well. And also, CU blew a touchdown pass uh, with a ticky-tack penalty in that game that would have put them up by seven, I think, in the second quarter. The problem is, I think, with the weak offense is that the defense plays its heart out week after week and simply wears down during the course of the game. I think that was my biggest fear going into this A&M game is that the defense will play well, but they've only got so much fuel in the tank. And I think one of the reasons A&M was able to drive at the end was that CU's defense was tired. Um, some of A&M's uh, pass completions on that last drive were done by a few millimeters where the DB was just very close to knocking it down. We couldn't get any pass rush. My concern is that if we can't gain 350 to 425 yards of offense and eat the clock, that we're in danger of being defeated. Well, we shall see how it plays out. I guess in terms of just, I'll just blow right through the preparation schedule. It's not as big of a deal this time of year. 
CU, of course, has a big game against Arizona State on the road next week, whereas Minnesota returns home to play an 0-2 Bowling Green team. I looked at the uh, football power index for that game, and I think Minnesota's like a 96.8% chance of winning that game. So uh, Minnesota is certainly going to be more focused on the buffs if the buffs are looking past Minnesota. I don't think that's a possibility, but just looking at the stats, Brad, I mean, it looks like you got strength against strength and you got weakness against weakness. You've got Minnesota's with the strong rushing game against a defense that is 15th in the nation in rushing defense, Colorado. And you've got weakness against weakness, Colorado's offense against a poor Minnesota defense. So which matchup are you most excited about? Which matchup are you most concerned about? Are you most concerned about CU not being able to move the ball against a defense that can't stop anybody? Or are you worried about CU's rushing defense, as Neil pointed out, and this was, you know, basically the Colorado football under Bill McCartney in the early 1980s, playing well for three quarters, but not having enough gas in the tank to withstand the onslaught of, you know, being out on the field all day. Well, until the offense shows up, I'm more concerned about the offense. I mean, that's not that hard to tell. Yeah, Minnesota is going to count on leaning on us all day and eventually breaking some plays. And that means the offense has to step up some, and I, I worry about that. They've got to sustain drives. But I think they can do that. I think, you know, the fact that Miami did not run the ball doesn't mean that Minnesota's a great rushing defense. They're not. So I do believe, you know, in the end, it's a hot day at altitude. I think that pays off for CU. Well, we have a lot of heat in Minnesota and a lot of humidity in Minnesota. So I don't know. The altitude used to be when CU was winning 10 or 11 games a year, they would have oxygen on the opposing benches. And that was a big deal. The story was, you know, fly in on Thursday to acclimate and things like that. And it doesn't seem to bother people as much when they, they win the games. So any other stats or any other, I'll throw that back to you, Neil, you, also believe that strength versus strength is the not the important part of this game, but the weakness against weakness, whether or not Colorado can exploit the Minnesota defense. Is that the key to the game? I, I do. I think that Minnesota comes in prefabricated as a one-dimensional offense. So that CU should be able to put seven and a half or eight in the box and really be effective at thwarting the running game. My concern, again, is with Brad that um, they won't be able to keep the defense off the field. The offense needs to come alive. And the weakness over the years has been, as you mentioned, that the defense would play well, but just after so many reps, after so many snaps, uh, just wore down. And I'm, I'm afraid that the Nebraska effect, as I would call it, from the 2019 game where Nebraska started to fold about midway through the third quarter and finally succumbed to the heat and the dryness in the altitude, that effect could operate on the Buffs as well if their offense doesn't sustain some drives. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could basically have the same game plan. You, I mean, Yes, you know, talk about putting 
you know, eight in the box and daring Minnesota to throw the ball. But Tanner Morgan's been more effective than Brendan Lewis. So the same game plan works against Colorado that until or unless Colorado can show that they can throw the ball. I mean, our longest pass play is 23 yards. I think Daniel Arias leads the receivers with 37 total yards in two games, one touchdown pass. There's nothing, no reason to believe that the game plan for Minnesota isn't to put eight in the box and say, okay, freshman, see if you can throw the ball. That just seems to be until whether it's Lewis being a freshman, Cheverini's play calling, ineffectiveness of the receivers to run the routes. We aren't coaches, but whatever it is, the passing game isn't working. And until Colorado can prove that they can throw the ball, it's going to get harder and harder to run the ball because they're just going to continue to have more and more. You know, you're going to have the safety playing eight yards off the line of scrimmage and saying, I dare you to throw over me. So that being said, it is now time. My prediction ends up being in the written form on Wednesday mornings in my written tips on the See What the Game website. But you guys get to give us predictions here on the podcast for everyone to listen to. So, uh, Brad, you're first alphabet- alphabetically. So, uh, give us your prediction for Colorado versus Minnesota in Folsom Field on Saturday. This is the first time the talent in a CU game this year has been equal so you perhaps slightly better we're at home we're at altitude i think our defense is better um see you 21 17 okay well neil the the uh vegas had minnesota as a one or two point favorite to open it quickly shifted to two points for colorado normally you get three points as a home team so Vegas is kind of calling this an even game. What uh, what would be your prediction? How do you see this playing out? I saw those odds as well, and I think the over was 50, or yeah. the under was 50. So they were predicting something like um, 27, or excuse me, 26 to 23, somewhere in there. I don't see CU scoring that much. Maybe they could stretch Brad's prediction to 23 assuming that their field goal kicker, our field goal kicker, can start hitting some kicks. And I'm going to say that the altitude and the dryness and the heat work more against Minnesota than it does the Buffs, and we're better able to shut down their running game than we are than they are able to shut down ours. And my hope is that Darrell and our, D, our OC – get on the same page, and decide to open up the game plan a little bit. They have to do that, in my opinion. Okay, give us a score. Well, I was trying to avoid that, but I think (laughs) I'd have to go with Vegas. It's something like um, 24-20, somewhere in that neighborhood. So both of you you seeing a close game one way or the other, so... Uh, yeah, the freshman kicker, Cole Becker, is 0 for 2 on the season. I think the 53-yarder that hit the crossbar against Northern Colorado was certainly forgivable. That's right at the edge of his range and probably wouldn't have been tried in another game. But against Northern Colorado, you got away with that. But, 
yeah, I think he'll feel a lot better about himself once he actually connects on a field goal instead of uh, having an offer on his resume at this point. So it may come down to that. We will see. We're going to see a lot, hopefully, of Jarek Broussard and Alex Fontenot. Hopefully won't see too much of Trace and Potts. And which team comes out with the more most rushing yards will probably be the team that uh, that wins the game. So, Neil, you want any words of wisdom before we head up to Folsom Field for Saturday morning? Um, I would say pack some sausage, get there early, and have a nice uh, breakfast burrito. <laughs> okay. Brad, pearls of, of wisdom for, for breakfast at Folsom? Watch the offensive lines. I know that's not the easiest thing to do as a fan. We don't all appreciate it, but take a minute and watch the offensive lines and see who's moving who. We'll figure that pretty early. And then if you get a second, just watch Nate Landman. It's damn fun. He is pretty special. I would If he doesn't hit double digits, if you want a stat to watch, you won't be able to actually track it very well. But a stat to watch, if, if he doesn't hit double digits and tackles, it's either because he's injured or Colorado's in deep trouble. So uh, we'll let that be the last word. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, my prediction for the Minnesota game will be posted with my written tips for the game, which will be up on the See You at the Game website first thing Wednesday morning. Your comments and suggestions for the podcast are always welcome and your interest in Colorado football is much appreciated. I hope you will stay with the Buffs, the See You at the Game website, and the podcast throughout the season. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.